Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. We're in a a series called David, Shepherd, King. Um, We've already been diving into the life of David. We've been reading through and the Psalms and 1-2 Samuel and just, just learning about these lessons that we can take from David's life. David was a man who, um, as it says there, a shepherd king. He was someone that, that served, that, that tended, that um, relied on God. Someone that walked um, with humility. Someone that was anointed but didn't get ahead of himself. Someone that was confident in God. And there's a whole heap of lessons that we can learn from David's life. So it's a pleasure to be sharing uh, for, uh, today from a key moment in David's life. We're actually, we're actually um, going to be talking about this great rebellion, this uprising, this, um, this moment um, where David is, has been anointed. He's faithfully followed God. He's arrived on the throne. He's king of Israel. And his own son, his own flesh and blood rises up and has this rebellion against him, tries to take the mantle from him. Uh, somewhat, I, I often think God's got a sense of humour. Um, I, uh, I used to say, um, and still do, I don't have a confidence issue. I've got far too much of it. You know, that's, <laughs> that's my confidence issue. This was the first preach that I was assigned at Bible college, this story of Absalom. It's a story of arrogance, of pride, of... Um, doing things your own way versus a posture of submission, humility towards God. So what happened in this story, this story of Absalom? Well, open your Bibles. If you've got your Bible app on your phone, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to, we're going to bounce around through 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel a bit today. So what happened after this uprising of Absalom? This is what we read. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will quickly, he'll, he'll move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people followed him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerathites and the Pelathites and the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath. They marched before the king. Jump down to verse 25. The king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and he'll let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king said to Zadok, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. 
In verse 30 it says, But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. In 2 Samuel chapter 16 it says this, verse 5. As King David approached Bahurnim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shemai, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. Though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left, as he cursed, Shemai said, get out of here. Get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for the, all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have, become, you have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Verse 10, it says, but the king said, uh, sorry, verse 9, then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? If, you are, if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask? Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my own, my own son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then, this Benjamite? This is a really intriguing story. This is a story about the posture of David as he's experiencing this rebellion, as he's experiencing this uprising, this attack against, against his throne, against uh, the Israelites. But there's actually two stories at play here. There's not just the story of David. There's also the story of Absalom. And what Scripture does for us here is it interweaves these two stories throughout a few chapters. The story of Absalom and the way he lives his life contrasts with the story of David and the way he lives his life. So we're going to start today as we unpack this, as we try and work out, well, why is David doing what he's doing? We're going to start by looking at the backstory. We're going to start by looking at the story of Absalom. Absalom, who's raised an army up against his own dad, who's trying to conquer the Lord's anointed, who's causing the king to flee the kingdom. This Absalom, who is doing some bad stuff. Absalom didn't actually start out bad. He didn't start out bad, but his heart was corrupted on the path. We don't necessarily start out bad, but our hearts can become corrupted on the path. To understand how Absalom got here, we've got to first look at a much earlier story. Absalom had a sister, Tamar, and Absalom's half-brother is devious. He's deceitful. He's disgusting. Absalom's half-brother tricks Tamar. He pretends to be unwell. He asks for Tamar to come and serve him in his bedchamber. And in 2 Samuel 13, it says this. She's, she's made some food for him. He's pretending to be unwell. And he says, send everyone out of here. This is Amnon, the half-brother. So, so everyone left. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. 
And Tamar took the bread. She prepared it and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Tamar um, refuses and says, No, this isn't right. This isn't right. We learn in verse 14, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. This is disgusting. This is despicable. This is um, broken. This is horrible. This is injustice. This is not right and this is not God's way. And Absalom learns about this, this, this disgusting act. And you can imagine him thinking of his sister, and his blood would be boiling. But the first act of Absalom is not an act of anger. His Absalom's first act is an act of love and compassion. See, in, in society back then, if a, if a woman had have gone to bed with a man outside of wedlock, they're ostracized. They're cast out from community. They're um, of nothing. They're, they're dead, essentially. Amnon didn't just commit a, a despicable act overpowering a young woman. He also ended her life through this act. And Absalom, we learn, he takes Tamar in. Society would have perceived that she's sinful, and Absalom says, come and live with me in my home. Absalom's first act is an act of love and compassion. Absalom didn't start life bad, but somewhere... On the journey, his heart was corrupted on that path. On our journey, the journey of our lives, our hearts can become corrupted on the path. So what happened? Absalom, um, you, you can imagine his blood boiling over the years, and we learn it's years he's, he's living with the burden of this injustice that's happened. It's just not fair. This is disgusting. This is despicable. God, I can imagine him crying out, like, you've got to right this wrong. This is not fair. And eventually, Absalom starts to wander off that path a little bit. He plots. He plans. He strategizes. He seizes control. Well, if God's not going to do it, I'm going to make it happen. With good intentions, he starts to set off in the wrong direction. This is the first lesson that we can take from Absalom. Our good intentions don't always set us in the right direction. Our good intentions don't always set us in the right direction. Absalom plans, he has his men, he, he gets Amnon away from society in, in, in a quiet spot, he plots, and he has his men kill him. Arguably, Amnon deserved it. The wages of sin is death. He's, he's done a despicable thing to another human. He's done a despicable thing to someone weaker than him. I'm not arguing that. But what we've got to learn here about Absalom is Absalom set outside, st stood outside of his responsibility. He took control. He seized control. And rather than surrendered, obedient to God, Absalom took an authority. 
So Absalom flees. He's now a murderer. He's murdered someone and he flees. And we learn he's, he's outside the kingdom, outside of, um, away from the Israelites for a number of years. Until eventually David, missing his son, missing Absalom, gives the decree, the royal decree, go, bring the young man Absalom back. Bring him back home. So Absalom gets to return. He gets to live with his people. He gets to be, be at home with his people. You imagine how freeing this would be. He's murdered, he's had to flee, and the king, his father, brings him home. But he doesn't get an audience with the king. He's still a murderer. And because of that, he doesn't get his social standing. He doesn't get to be, to, to have an audience with the king. He's brought home undeservedly. He's brought home with grace, with love, with compassion, come home. But he doesn't want to sit here. He wants to be there. He feels he deserves better. He feels justified. He's, he's the king's son. Is the heir. So what does he do? He starts to plot. He starts to strategize. Well, how am I going to get back? How am I going to get back to where I, do, where I deserve to be? He starts to put pressure on David's men. He goes to Joab and he, he, he pressures him. Put me back in front of the king. Put me back in front of David. Put me in my rightful position. Joab, one of these advisors, says no. So after asking and applying pressure verbally, he goes and burns Joab's crop. He goes and burns a field. He's now a standover man. He forces his own agenda. The irony is Absalom took God's control off of God. He took control. He, he murdered. But he's become self-justified. He thought he deserved better. See, our, our good intentions don't always set us in the right direction. But when we're self-assured, when we're so self-justified, that will lead us in the wrong direction. Our self-assurance will lead us in the wrong direction. It's really subtle. You deserve more. Advertising plays on this. You deserve this. You've earned this. Or maybe it's the invert of that. Maybe it's what you don't deserve. When someone cuts me off in traffic, how dare they? I don't deserve this. It's this subtle voice, this, this little voice of entitlement. We've been set in the wrong direction, and as we assure ourselves that we're heading in the right direction, we can walk away from God's path. So what does David do? Absalom's put this pressure on. He's become a standover man. And we learn that David warmly accepts him back. We learn that David plants a kiss on his forehead. He says, welcome home, Absalom. But Absalom's heart is becoming corrupted on the path. He's had these good intentions. He's been set in the wrong direction. He's full of self-assurance, keeping him walking away from God. And now he has plans for more. 
What's Absalom's state of mind at this point? What's he thinking? What's his worldview? What's he, what does he believe? Well, there's actually um, uh, 2 Samuel 14, so a really good few verse, verses 25 and 26 that give us an insight into where's, where's his mind at. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut his hair off his head, he used to cut it once a year because he was, it became too heavy for him. He'd weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels by royal standard. Oh, what a guy. Absalom's starting to focus on self. He's, he makes a plot. He accumulates 50 men, he gets a chariot, he gets horses. He's starting an uprising. He goes and stands at the city gate as the people are coming in and he starts to appeal to them. He starts to say, oh, I know, you're struggling. If only, if only I were appointed judge. If only I was in charge. If only I had the position I deserved. I'd make sure justice was done. He built an army. He took on a mantle that wasn't his. And he devises this uprising. Absalom's good intentions, he didn't start out bad, his good intentions set him in the wrong direction. Unchecked, with self-assurance, he carried on down that path. And now at this moment, after walking unchecked, His self-assurance has meant that he's walked so far from God's path, he can't even see it anymore. He's lost sight. He's lost sight of that path, that inner work, that work of humility that God does. Absalom's absolutely given himself over now to self-focus. My world, my way, my walk, I'm in charge. I, um, years ago, I was talking to a colleague about faith and the words that came out of this guy's mouth, I was shocked by, but it, was, it came out so naturally. He said, I was explaining how God wants to lead us. God wants to be the king of our life. And he said, well, I'm king of my life. I'm in charge of my life. Shocked me at the time. but I can very quickly become like Absalom. My heart can get corrupted on the path. If our good intentions set us in the wrong direction, self-assurance keeps us walking on that path, our self-focus will ensure that we arrive at the wrong destination. Our self-focus will ensure we arrive at the wrong destination. The reality is this. The posture of your heart sets the direction of our lives. The posture of your heart charts the course of your life. It's the same for you as me. So how does this end for Absalom? This journey that he started, how does this end? 
Well, we read in um, 2 Samuel 18. So by this point, Absalom, um, he's... The King David, King David has learned of this uprising. He's, he's accumulated these men. He's charged the city. David's fled. The story we read at the start, David's gone out into the wilderness with some men. And Absalom's, um, Absalom's the head honcho now. He's got, he's got the keys to the king. He's in Jerusalem. But arrogance, the arrogance, the pride that's in his heart, his advice, stay behind and let the men go out and chase down David and his men in the wilderness. But Absalom thinks, no. Nah. <laughs> This is my victory. I've got to be the one. It's my sword. I'm going to win this. So unwisely, he goes out himself. And we read this, these lines in 2 Samuel 18, verse, verse 9. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule kept, he was riding, kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. How strange. Scholars will tell you when you read something in scripture that's weird, that's like almost comical, that's a bit funny, take note. God is trying to show us something. He's trying to demonstrate something to us. These flowing locks, this hair of Absalom, this outward declaration of an inward spiritual truth is the very thing that snares him. It's a warning. It's a warning to us. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid becoming like Absalom? How do we avoid getting snared? Well, let's take a look at the life of David. So this, this passage we read earlier, there's a whole heap of things I want to draw on from this passage of David fleeing. A number of other strange things that we're encouraged to look at and see the, the importance that lies within them. So the first thing is this. David actually flees. So David's king. It said in one of the verses, there was, it named a number of people groups, and then he said, oh, there were 600 of those as well. That's a mighty army by anyone's standard. David could have said, we're in Jerusalem. We're in a fortified city. Bring it on. He could have arrogantly, indignantly, I'm the anointed, he could have said. I'm going to stay here. Like, this is going to be all right. Even more, David could have thought, what are they going to think? What are they going to think if I flee? Are they going to think I'm a coward? But David didn't do any of those things. He didn't act with cowardness. He didn't act with arrogance. He, didn't, he wasn't afraid of what people thought. He actually took a humble path. It was the humility of David's walk that set him free. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it, says Jesus. So this is the first thing I want to draw on from, from David's life. First of all, he's able to, to walk with God despite how it's perceived. Despite what his thought might be saying you should do, he is able to walk with God. And he is able to get up out of the throne and flee. 
Second point, there's this really strange, strange point. It says in, in um, one of the verses, it says that David arrived on the edge of the city and all of his men walked past him. And that's when they mention the people groups and they say these 600, they all walked past. If you think about it, the safest place for David to be is furthest from the oppression. Right at the front, forging the way, at the front, with the city under siege behind him and the chase coming up. Absalom would have had to slave through 600, 700, 800 people to get to David. But David doesn't do that. He stops at the city edge and he, all of the men walk past him. David walks at the back. Not only is this position a position of humility, I'm not leading, I'm following. Not only is this a position of humility, but it's a position of confidence, not arrogance. This isn't, I'm staying and this is going to be all right. This is, we need to flee. We've got to get out of here. But there's also a trust in God. Interestingly, David didn't know how this was going to pan out. He's, he doesn't know whether this is the end of his time as king. He's almost released from that. And he's able to walk with God at the back. Another really interesting thing is, is where, it's, where Scripture tells us that he was weeping. So now is he not only walking at the back, he's weeping. He's got his head covered and he's barefoot. Contrary to Absalom's posture of entitlement, David has this walk of acceptance. In verse 25, it's a really interesting passage where David says, take the Ark of the Covenant back. Take the presence of God back. Take the dwelling place of the holiest of holies. Take it back to the city. This isn't defeat. This isn't, uh, it's not worth putting up the fight, send it back. This isn't um, a giving up. But it's also not a hoarding. This isn't David strategizing. We need the presence of God. Let's keep this, keep this here. I've got a strategy. I've got a plan. This is my safety blanket, my protection. This is just true submission. This is trust in how God's plan will unfold. See, David, has a, his humility sets him in the right direction. His acceptance of God's will means he can hold the path. And his trust in God means that he'll reach the right destination, wherever that may be. It's the same for us. Our humility, the posture of our humility, will set us in the right direction. Uncompromising acceptance of God's plan over our lives will mean we can walk his path. And as we trust in God, as we place our trust in God, we will arrive at the right destination. If you're anything like me now, you're thinking, whew, whew. Thank goodness I'm like David, eh? Look around, look to the right and left. They're the ones, they need it. You guys, you're like Absalom, you should listen to this one. This one's for you, this sermon. There's no true Davids. If you're in this room, you're on this earth, there's no true Davids. 
David actually embodies and represents something here that he couldn't even achieve in his own lifetime. He falls short. You and I, we're not the heroes in our story. David even says it prophetically. He says, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. My own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. There is this battle raging, but it's not out there. It's not between me, the David good guy, and the guy that cut me up while I was driving. It's not between me and the person that was rude to me at the, in the supermarket or the person that didn't understand me fully at church and said something that offended my spirit. That's not where the battle is. The battle's in here. There's a battle in here between our flesh and our spirit. But there's, a, there's really good news. Unlike Absalom, unlike David, we live in a time post-Pentecost, the time where the Holy Spirit has come into the world and resides here. The Holy Spirit resides here in the believers now. And through that, as we listen to that Spirit, as we allow the Holy Spirit to work with our spirit, as we get in alignment in our heart with God, we're able to claim a victory that God's already claimed. We're able to step into a battle here that God has already won. Scripture says the heart's deceitful above all things. My heart's deceitful above all things. Your heart is deceitful above all things. But when, the, when we commune with the Spirit in here, we're able to rise above that. We're able to step into God's victory in that battle. It's really funny that um, I think of Absalom and all he really needed to do was ask. Does that ever occur to you? Like, you can imagine him, Absalom, with his mates, but have actually paused, reflected, and said, Hey, um, guys, I have a little bit in front of myself. Any, do you ever see anything? I'm looking around. Well, who's going to tell him? Who's going to tell him? Absalom, you know, um, you know when you weigh your hair? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit self-focused, mate. Oh. <laughs> I once gave a list of questions to a friend, a Christian friend, trusted friend, respected their faith, and wrote out some questions. These are the questions I want you to ask me to check where my heart's at. Really? Said my friend. Yep. First time we caught up. We planned to catch up once a month. First time we caught up, he asked me the questions. I was like, Oh, that really hurts. That really hurts. That was good for me. Second time, another month passes, we caught up again. He asked me the questions and I was like, how dare you? How dare you ask me those? Oh, hang on, these are my questions that you're asking me. The people around you, they see it. If they're following God, if they're pursuing God, if they're praying for you, if they're seeking God in their own life, they see what you don't want to show them. People around me, if they're following God, if they're praying, if they're spending time with God, if they're spending time around me, they see my brokenness. 
They see what I don't want to show them. All Absalom had to do was ask. In fact, he had to do one more thing. He had to ask. And then the hard bit, he had to listen. He had to hear. It's a humble heart. The humble heart of David that will set us in that right direction. There's a really funny few lines right at the end of 2 Samuel 18. This is after um, David's men of Absalom's hanging in an oak tree. How strange. David's men gather around, they, they grab some spears and they spear Absalom. That's the end of him. And scripture says this They took Absalom, they threw him in a big pit in the forest, and they piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. And then verse 18. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. The irony. Absalom spent his life building a monument to himself, and he finished in a pit covered in stones. Don't waste your life building a monument to yourself. Please. Ryan, don't waste your life building a monument to yourself. Instead, step into God. Let God's glory come into this world through my life. That's what God's inviting us into as his people. Don't waste your life building a monument to self. Say yes to God with a humble heart. Say yes to God and let him use your life to bring glory into this world. Despite the circumstances, despite the strife, despite the injustice that you face, despite anything that happens around you, don't build a monument to yourself. Let God use your life. That's what he's inviting us into. God wants to use your life to display his glory to this world. That's the invite from God today. I'm going to get everyone to stand and I'm going to pray over us. If you feel comfortable, hold your hands out. Lord, I, I repent for where I've, when I've made this about me. We repent, Lord, for where we've, with good intentions, we've set off in the wrong direction, Lord. Lord, we repent for where we've been self-assured and just walked away from your path. Lord, we just declare as the people of God that we want to pursue you despite cost, despite whatever may happen in our lives. We want to use our lives as a living sacrifice, Lord. We offer ourselves. Lord, we pray your kingdom come. Your will be done through our lives as in heaven. May we be marked, Lord, by your humility, your willingness to humble our, give us supernatural willingness to humble ourselves, to bend our knees, to say yes to you in every situation. And Lord, we know as, as we do that, your glory will come. Give us more, Lord, more of you. In Jesus' name. Amen.